So I'm online at the drive-thru, and I order a number one with a Coke. Simple, right? Guy goes, number seven? I'm like, no, number one, please. Number seven? Number one. Thank you. Diet Dr. Pepper? I'm like, a Coke? A Coke. Number one with a Coke. It makes me, his thing, it makes me crazy. Cause I go there like four times a week. I don't even like the, I don't even like the food very much. I only go there cause I love it. You know what I'm saying? It makes me want to scream though. Every time it's like in the morning, if I, if I go there for like a coffee, I'm like, have a large French vanilla light and sweet. And they're like, what? Large French vanilla light and sweet. Latte? I'm like, no latte! Ugh! Are you even listening to me? Are you even listening to me? No, you're not. Are you paying attention to there's a squirrel? You are the worst listener ever. I don't know why I even hang out with you. Every one of us has sat beside someone like that on a bench. Am I right? Yeah. Someone who uh, is extremely proficient at describing in detail everything that's not going right in their lives. Someone who's a virtuoso in bringing you in to hear the way that the people around them are all making their lives just so much more difficult. Someone who you want to turn away from like that poor dog turned away from our friend there. Someone who in every field of wildflowers is always able to find the one pile of manure. These are our friends. And they are our family members. They are the people who are close to us at work and in our neighborhoods who suffer from our second habit of the chronically unhappy. The habit is complaining. Yeah. You see someone that you know up there, but you need to see yourself up there too. The kids are not behaving. The traffic is awful. It's too cold again. The neighbors are on my nerves. My boss is too demanding. The girl at the coffee shop got my drink wrong. Our administrator is unfair. My spouse won't talk enough. My spouse talks too much. The microphone at the Christmas concert was turned off, and I stood up there, and I started to talk, and it wasn't on. Can you believe it? That was actually me. <laughs> and Josh, it's time for me to tell you that the reason it didn't work is I had turned it off myself. <laughs> Isn't it so easy to see all the things around you that aren't going well and just talk about it, but never really do anything to change it? And I don't have to ask you if you've actually been close to someone like that or if you could bring someone to mind. I know you already have one or two people in mind right now and you're thinking, I wish they were here this morning. Put that person out of your mind and I want to ask you the opposite. Have you ever encountered someone who is just plain content. Someone who is doing well no matter how things are going in the world around them. Even when there's difficult people nearby. Even when his dreams fail to materialize and he has to start again. Even when she has to face the thing which she is absolutely certain is far too hard for her to face, even when she loses the very thing which she always believed she could never do without it, she's doing well nonetheless because she has learned the secret of contentment. 
Do you know someone like that? Maybe it's a friend or an uncle or, or someone that you know at church or at work. Would you let that person come into your mind a, a minute? People like that, they inspire us and they change us. And they're good for the world. And what we're going to do this morning together is dwell a bit on how a person gets to that place where what they have is the very opposite of the habit of complaining. They've reached contentment. Uh, There's a person in the Bible who will show us what it looks like to get there. And we'll spend some time together on that. And I'll tell you why. Because what I hope is that our time together, where we gather around this habit of complaining, will actually help us, all of us who are gathered here, move a little bit forward on the path of contentment. We need it. All of us need it individually. We need it together. Our world needs it. I hope that that happens. And so I'm going to ask you, as I share this morning, to listen with grace if you're doing well in this area, to be ready to learn to help others grow and for all of us to be ready to change. I asked this last week, and I ask it again. Are you ready for that to change a bit today? After we consider contentment, what it looks like and where it comes from, then we'll dwell a little bit on what happens when a person habitually complains. Can we be honest for a minute? Sometimes it's fun to talk about people who complain a lot. Isn't it? We have to be careful, of course, that we don't start complaining about them. But what we'll do is look at what it looks like, and listen... I hope we'll all see ourselves there, all of us. And then, and then the very same man who tells us about contentment will teach us how to practice it. So this is going to be practical today. I want to give you some very concrete steps that come right out of the Bible for how to be a person who grows more and more over time with the skill of contentment. And here's why. And I want you to think of that person again who you know who is content. Because when we're content, it's not only good for us, but it's good for the world around us. And that's what I want our time together to do. So let's dive in first to the secret of contentment. Before we get into the text, I want to ask you to do one very practical thing. And this is personal. I want you to consider for a moment the things which cause you to complain. Don't think of another person. Think of you. What is it for you that gets you on that pattern of talking over and over again about some negative thing but never doing anything to change it. Now be honest with yourself. What is it? Is it work? Is it politics? Is it the people that are close to you in your home or at church? Is it all of the above? Whatever it is, let it come into your mind. And now tell me, if I'm right, what you want is for those things out there to change. But since you have no power to change them, what you need is to change in here. Dwell on that for a moment. Your natural inclination is going to be to want those things out there, those people out there, those circumstances out there to be different, but you cannot control them. And so what you actually need is to discover how to change in here so that the distance between what's happening out there and what's happening in here increases so that you can be a person who is doing well inside whatever's going on outside. And that is the secret of contentment. 
Now, now you're ready to look with me at the words of one man who's discovered this secret. His name was Paul. He was a man who had met Jesus and his whole life had been transformed and changed. And he became a man who wanted to see that happen for others. In Philippi, one little city where he had visited, he had started a community of people gathered around the news of Jesus. And after spending time with him, he left and he wrote them a letter so that they would be encouraged in joy. And I want you to look now at one phrase of his, and we'll dwell on this for a moment. This is in Philippians 4, and it's part of verse 11. Look at the words that I read. Paul writes, I have learned to be content with whatever I have. The thing which makes you complain is what you have. And here is a man who is able to say to people who he knows and loves that he has learned to be content with whatever he has. Whether the people around him are encouraging or discouraging. Whether work is going his way or not whether the circumstances that he had hoped would come about so he could move forward in the direction he wanted to go are favorable or unfavorable, this man knows the quiet inner peace, the settled disposition, the well-being that emanates from the inside, which is attractive and beautiful, which we want. He knows it. But I want you to pay close attention to his words because there's a first lesson for us here about contentment. And it's in the very first words that he says. Notice carefully. He does not say that he is content. He tells us that he has learned to be content. Do you see the difference between simply being and learning to be? No one, well, very few of us, start out in calculus and know exactly how to do it or get on a skateboard and are good enough to avoid hurting ourselves, or, or, or decide it's time for a new hobby and just all at once have it. No, we have to learn to do those things which are, learning to, which are worth learning to do. And contentment is no different, and we learn that right off the bat here from Paul. This is a man who has worked has applied his mind, has developed habits and practices, and has disciplined his inner life so that the result is contentment. So that the result is the exact opposite of what a person is experiencing in the very moment when they are going on and on about how nothing is going their way. He has learned to be content. And this is what I want to help us do this morning, some learning. Now look at how he continues. And this is in verse 12. He acknowledges, I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. It would be one thing to hear some guidance about how to be content from a man who never had any problems who had an easy life top to bottom. Have you ever encountered someone like that who starts to give you good advice and you think inside, oh, you've never struggled a day in your life, and then you envision punching them right in the face? <laughs> I just heard someone, I, I thought of that. This is a man who knows tremendous success and at the same time knows tremendous failure. 
This is a man who knows what it is to achieve the greatest possible achievements in his work life. He talks about that in another place. In his community, in his profession, he was as, as high as anyone could get and he lost it all. He knows what it's like to do that too. He knows what it's like to be totally and utter, utterly free, to have the ability to grasp and move wherever and whatever he wants and he also knows what it is to be constrained and have no freedom at all. In fact, if you would take up this letter of Philippians and read it from the start, you would know that this man is in prison when he writes these words. He is chained to a pole in a Roman prison. Uh, strangely enough, this week on Tuesday, I'm in my study working on this very passage when I receive a text message from a friend of mine who lives in the UK who's visiting Rome, and it's a photograph. I open it up and it says, the prison where Paul was under arrest in Rome. It came while I was working on this. Let me tell you, it was not a nice prison. There was no TV and workout room. In that place, this man says, I've learned the secret of having plenty, of being well-fed, and of being hungry. And that's his poetic way of saying, I've learned, listen now, I've learned that it is a myth that you are doing as well on the inside as things are going for you on the outside. I've learned that it's not true that when you finally get that job or get that relationship or things go your way with enough money or resources, then you'll be content on the inside. That's not true at all, he says. Just as it's not true that even when things don't go your way, when you've lost yet again, when your dreams have been removed one more time, it's also not true that then you must be doing bad. Do some of you know this from experience? That there are those who outwardly seem to be as successful as anyone could ever dare dream or imagine, and yet on the inside, they're so empty, all they can do when they open their mouth is spew negativity. They complain all the time. Whereas there are those who seem to have nothing, who are hungry, who are needy, and yet they radiate an inner joy that is so bright and brilliant, it's attractive. You want to be around it. You want to be near them. This is a secret which Paul has discovered. And a secret which has the weight of coming from a man who is in jail when he writes of it. And so we should listen. And here's what he says the secret is. This is verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, Paul is talking about Jesus. And Paul is not saying in this moment, whatever you dream you can do, you'll be able to do it if you just believe Jesus will make you do it. Have you ever heard this saying applied in that way? That's not what he's talking about. He knows that when he writes from prison about this inner contentment, any and all reasonable men and women who hear of it would say, how can anyone possibly do that? How can it possibly be true that you could be okay on the inside even when everything's wrong on the outside? And to answer that question, Paul says, I can do that. I can do it through Christ who strengthens me. That's how I can do it. 
And what Paul means by that is here is a man who knew the success in every worldly measure and the inner emptiness that accompanied it. And then when he met Jesus and lost everything that he once counted as gain, he saw that he had lost nothing but gained everything because now he had Jesus. Listen to this. This is what Paul believed. Now he had Jesus, the one who was God himself come down into the world to rescue men and women, who even though Jesus knew what a miserable crank Paul was, he loved him and gave himself for him. He rescued Paul to show how great his patience was for sinners. That's the word that Paul used, of whom Paul said, I am the greatest. And this man who could look at himself and say, I'm a wreck before God, but thank goodness I've been rescued and delivered by the grace of God so that now Jesus is my Lord and my companion, my friend, the spirit who is with me at all times, the one who gives me strength to face everything. Now I can be content no matter what is happening in the world around me. That's the secret of inner contentment. To know and walk with and trust Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me. Now think about your complaints. I'll think about mine for a moment over here. Oh, the moments I'm complaining, I've got my vision turned in and I'm looking at myself and the things that aren't going my way and you know what I don't see? I don't see I don't see the most important thing, which is that I am, I'm beloved by God himself. That God looks at me even as I chronically complain, even as I miss all the good things that he's given me, and he's only waiting for me to turn my gaze toward him and see his loving, his loving gaze toward me. That he loves me even there, and that he's holding me, and that no matter how badly the things around me seem to be going, he has given me everything I need for the life of joy. And by the way, the theme of the letter of Philippians, start to finish, is joy. Paul wants them to have the joy that he has as he dwells on Jesus. You are invited. I'm inviting you right now, every one of you, to have all of the misery in your life here and then to look away and to trust and believe that God in Christ loves you with a love that is deeper and stronger than anything you must ever face. And that he is holding you and caring for you no matter what it is. No matter what you have to complain about. If it's as small as your microphone not working, you didn't turn it on. Or as grand as your whole world falling apart, God himself is ready to embrace and hold you and support you. And when you dwell on that, you are ready to be freed from complaining for a life of contentment no matter what's happening. Does that sound too good to be true? I take your silence as an emphatic yes. Do you know how awful it is to get stuck complaining? Do you know that? I want to dwell on what complaint is like even though I don't want to dwell on it because I don't like it. Now, some of us have uh, pet peeves of one kind or another. For me, it's, it's the complainer that is the hardest for me. When I see this video of, of this man who I know, that's Joe for those of you who don't know him, who I like very much. When I watch him complaining like that, I don't want to talk to him anymore. But when we complain, there are predictable outcomes. And this is true, and I want to dwell here for a minute so that we have clarity about what complaining actually does. And this is important for us if we're going to grow. Okay, before we think about the dynamics, I want to, I want to clarify something. Uh, by complaining... I do not mean any and all negative speech. 
The truth about life is there are plenty of things that are going wrong and it is absolutely fine to verbalize problems. When you see something in your environment that's not good, it is completely appropriate to say so and to talk about it. And if anyone gets up and tells you you should never be negative at all, don't listen to that person. The truth about not only life out there, but the life of faith is that there are going to be times where it's completely appropriate for us to talk about what's not right and even tell God about it. The Psalms are filled with Psalms of complaint in a productive way where the psalmist tells God that things aren't good. But what I mean by complaint is the kind of speech which talks about what's not going right just for the sake of talking about it. Do you know what I mean? The kind of going around in circles that before long seems to exist only for its own sake. As if the person who is complaining has fallen in love with his whiny voice. As if the person has learned that, oh, I can get lots of attention in every social setting by having worse stories than everyone else to, to say. Have you ever had someone like that? Oh, I can rope them in and I can, you tell me what's wrong with you. I've got something worse. And before long, everybody but the, the two people who suffer from chronic complaining are stuck in the same room. And don't invite me there. In that moment, that kind of talking about something but not doing anything, listen, it's not funny. And it's not funny because it robs people of the joy that they were meant to have. And not only that, it tends to make them more negative. And even worse, it keeps them from improving in any way. And what God wants for us, and he really does want this, and, and if you have such a miserable time right now that you're stuck complaining, please, please, Jesus has grace for you. We all must have grace for those even who chronically complain because we'll be there ourselves at some point. But if that's where you are, this is what is going to happen. I've got three predictable outcomes of this kind of chronic complaining. Here's the first one. When you chronically complain, it drives people away. It does. Being around someone who is constantly running around in circles about why everything is not going their way is just plain life-draining. And, and before long, you will begin to find, if this is you, that people have reasons for not spending time. It's because they can't take it anymore. And, and I know this is true from my own experience. I also know it's true from the results of my Google search on Chronic complaining. I thought I would find articles that talked about how to help people who complain a lot. I didn't find even one. Every single one of them was about how to deal with a chronic complainer, which means the web traffic is driven by people who are trying to pull their hair out, figuring out how to get away. <laughs> I'm serious. And, and the advice, it's almost always the same advice. Uh, things like, uh, don't tell them that other people have it bad indulge uh, them in their feelings and don't ever give them advice. It's like the exact opposite of what I'm doing in this sermon. <laughs> but if you will complain over and over, people will go away. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing that happens. Chronic complaining actually makes you more negative. The person who complains thinks, no, I'm complaining because, I'm neg- because things around me are negative. But in fact, over time, you are complaining because complaining makes you more prone to being negative. Uh, If you think about your brain as if it's a muscle, which it is, the more you exercise that muscle in a specific direction, the better it gets at going in that direction. 
Uh, Research indicates even that there are neurological pathways that get strengthened and reinforced as you chronically complain so that the next time something bad happens, you're even more likely to complain. You're even better at it. You think of it like ruts in a country road. The more you go down that road, the deeper the ruts get and the harder it is to go in any other direction. And now, not only are you isolating yourself, but you're finding yourself on that same old road again and again. And this is a second but not the worst consequence. The worst consequence of chronic complaining is this third one, and it is that it keeps you from fixing your problems. It actually does. And here's why. I want to be precise here. Complaining is a way of letting off enough displeasure around a specific problem that it no longer bothers you so much to go ahead and make the change that you should make which you would be more likely to make if you'd had not let off steam by complaining. It's like there's a problem here and it makes you feel very uncomfortable and it should make you feel uncomfortable because it's an indication that there's a need for a change. And when you go off from that problem and you think about it and you talk about it and complain, you're letting off enough steam so that you can go back to that problem and tolerate it for one more day. And then you strike an equilibrium and before long you are chronically in a state of always talking about what's wrong but never doing anything to change it. Do you see that? It's like taking ibuprofen for a really bad toothache. The the more it hurts, the more you take. And what you need is to go get a root canal. You need to stop taking that ibuprofen until it hurts so bad it drives you to the dentist. And what you need and what I need and what we need as people is to stop only ever talking about what's wrong and to let it hurt us enough so it moves us to go do something to change it. Do you see that? This This is good advice. Uh, All of the Google articles, uh, advice to the contrary. This is good. If your job is really bothering you, stop talking about how much it's bothering you and start thinking instead what you can do to change it. If there's a friend that has been letting you down and annoying you and your strategy has been to find another friend and you complain with that other friend about that person, stop talking negative about them and go and talk to them. And you can apply this to anything in your life that is driving you to complain. Ask, what am I going to do about it every time your impulse is to start talking negative but doing nothing? Now listen, this is critical. If you will discover the path away from complaint toward contentment, what will happen is that you will become a person who has the joy that you were meant to have in small measures. Day by day. Remember, Paul said, I've learned to be content. It takes time. But as you learn, you will move forward in the direction that God made you to move in. And then you'll be good for the people around you. And so now, I want to give you very simple and practical guidance on how to move away from that pattern of complaining so that people want to be around you less, so that you become more negative and you never fix your problems. And this guidance also comes from Paul, the same man who talked about the secret of contentment. It's just a few verses earlier than what we read in chapter 4 of the very same letter of Philippians. Here's what he tells those people together about how to find joy. This is verse 8. Beloved, and that's how he addresses them. He's telling them this because he loves them and he wants to see them change. Beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is 
pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And the verb which is translated here, think about, is in a Greek tense which implies the development of an ongoing habitual action. He is saying, make it your habit to put your mind over and over on things which fall into the category that I've just now listed for you. Let your mind, which you have the capacity to do as long as you are a sentient being, go back again and again to things like these. And if you notice, the things which he lists here are the exact opposite of what your mind is dwelling on every time you are complaining. He is saying, in effect, yes, I know what it is to have difficult circumstances and talk about them over and over again, but what I'm suggesting to you is that you will begin to move toward contentment when you practice intentionally, when you exercise your mind around dwelling on these kinds of things. And the best way to exercise your mind to dwell on certain things is to talk about them. When you talk about something, you're thinking about it. I know someone here is like, no, no, I've got a friend. He goes on autopilot and talks and talks and talks. There's no thought behind that. (laughs) No, when you intentionally speak on a subject, you are thinking about it. So let's try this. Let's imagine. Just pick one. Whatever is just. That means whatever is fair. Think about what happens when when you're complaining. Half the time, you're complaining about some injustice out there a way that you were treated unfairly. Oh, I can't believe it. They got my microphone wrong. No, I got it wrong. You dwell on the injustice out there and pretty soon you're completely removed from what's real. Try the opposite. Can you think for a moment of a picture of justice? Something that someone did out there that was just so good and kind and right Maybe they did it for another person or maybe they did it for you. Maybe there was a moment where you were treated fairly and you can call that to mind. Paul says here, talk about that. And how do you do that? It's very simple. You grab a friend and instead of griping about the way you were treated unfairly, say, hey, I want to tell you something. I want to tell you a story about, listen to this. This friend of mine out of nowhere sent me a gift, a letter in the mail and I opened it and it was just, it was just such a great, thoughtful thing that they did for me even though I didn't deserve it. Talk like that and you will be on the path toward contentment. Whatever is pleasing, of course, there are those of us who are experts at finding the one million displeasurable things all around us and we can go on and on about the way we've been let down and failed but what about starting a conversation with, hey, I've got something really cool to tell you. I had a pizza the other day, it was so good I felt I'd gone to heaven. (laughs) That's true. Talk about things like that, Paul is saying. And I want you to understand this. Listen, it's time for us to take responsibility for how we're doing. And here is a very simple bit of guidance from a man who knew Christ and who was inspired by God to write these very words who's teaching us how to do it. And I want this to be practical. Uh, Maybe tonight, if you have little children, uh, you you go uh, before bed and you tell them, before we go to sleep, I want you to tell me two or three things that you're really happy about. Something that you're thankful for. I don't know. Well, you're not going to sleep until you tell me. (laughs) And, And get them to say a few things. 
and then make it your habit every night before bed to get them talking about things which are true and honorable, just and pure, pleasing and commendable, excellent and worthy of praise. Or if you don't have kids and you're going to sit down tonight for a meal with at least one other person, say, hey, how about tonight as we're eating, each one of us talks about something that made us really happy. How about we share about the highlight of our last vacation? Oh, I can't believe I've got to go to work. I wish I was back on vacation. Okay, <laughs> keep trying. <laughs> no, let's just think about it for a minute. What was it like? And, and actually work at that together. And you might do it there. I, I told you last week about a couple that I met within an Irish pub to help them prepare for marriage. I gave them an assignment. I gave them these words, and what I told them is, you're going to go home, and you're going to sit down together, and if you're a couple, you can do this. You're going to sit down together, and for 10 minutes, you're going to, each one, write a list of all of the things that fall into this category in your own experience. And then for, for 40 minutes... You're going to talk together about your lists. No complaining. Oh, I, I knew that their pattern was after work, they get together, they sit down in front of the TV, they watch for a little while, and then she tells them about how annoying her boss is and how inconvenient it is that they did a shift change and now that the administration is requiring all this paperwork, she can't be with patients any longer. And he talked about how difficult it was at the Apple store to remain positive all the time, my goodness. And they could go on and on like this in this habit of complaining. But this... This, this instruction here from Paul is practical and it works. They came back and reported to me how wonderful it was to have this time of talking about what was good. They ended it by praying and just thanking God for all of the good things in their lives. This guidance is for you and for me the first steps toward the path of contentment. And then listen now. So I want you to remember Paul's secret of contentment. It's not just enough to say, well, here are the good things. On that path, I invite you to consider that Jesus Christ, the Lord himself, has loved you and given himself for you, and he is on that path with you. Walking and bringing you toward the contentment that he made you for and the joy that he made you to experience, and he's doing that for a good reason. And this, to me, is the most important thing I'm going to tell you this morning. He's doing that because when you become a person of contentment, listen now, all three of what happens when you complain, all three of those are reversed. Then people want to be around you. Then you grow as a person who's more positive. And then you actually become someone who prevails over their problems. And that in itself is good, but it's not as good as the outcome for the world around you. P please listen. Because when you do that, when you become a person of contentment, even though you have every reason to complain, then you shine as a bright light in a world that is impossibly dark. Then you become an inspiration to the people around you. And with your own example, you change those who are themselves facing difficult circumstances because people pay attention to you. When things are hard, but you are content, well, you shine a light that moves people. Do you know this? I need some sign that someone here knows it. I asked, I asked up front if you knew anyone who, who's like this. I asked that because I know someone like this. And it's not too much to say that she is a person who's made me partly what I am right now. Her name 
is Laura Bratton. Any teachers here? Do we have any teachers, school teachers? Aren't students great at complaining? Oh, yeah. I taught in middle school and I saw the complaints. I taught in graduate school. No difference. <laughs> ten, ten years ago, I was invited to speak or to teach at Princeton, to co-teach a course with a professor there. As we were putting together the syllabus, this professor told me, Christian, you're requiring an awful lot of reading. I said, these are graduate students. He said, they're going to complain. I said, I don't care. There was a lot of reading. He then told me, we have to get our reading list in early because there's a blind student. And they're going to have to prepare these manuscripts in Braille. I arrived at, at, at Princeton Seminary where I was teaching. And the class started to roll along and there were complaints. Never, ever one complaint from Laura Bratton, the blind student. Her papers were magnificent. One day in class, I was going on and on about Jesus and the strength that he gives us to have contentment even though life is difficult. And I asked the entire class together, would someone be willing to tell us what Jesus' strength has meant for them in their own lives? I knew if we talked about that positive thing, it would help. There were four or five students who shared. I noticed while they were sharing that Laura, who was always always smiling, seemed to be beaming even brighter than normal. Now, she didn't share. But after class got done, she came up to me and she said, Professor Andrews, I insisted that they call me that. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> she said, Christian, would you, would you let me take you out to lunch? I want to tell you how Jesus has strengthened me and I couldn't do it in front of class. I said, okay. We sat down at the lunch table, me and Laura and her seeing eye dog. And the first thing she said was, Christian, I can still remember what the leaves looked like in fall. I'd thought she'd been born blind. When I was nine years old, I noticed that my peripheral vision began to shrink. I went to the doctors and they told me, there is nothing we can do. You will lose your vision. Year after year, it became worse and worse. Middle school was hard. But then, she told me this, but then I began to pray every day, God, please don't let me go blind. And by the way, while she was telling me this and I was all weepy and crying, she was smiling. Uh, thank, thankfully, she didn't know that, but that's what was happening. <laughs> the summer before I entered high school, I cried myself to sleep every night praying, God, I can't do it. God, I cannot do it. God, do not make me go into high school as a blind person. I can't do it. And then I went blind. And I started my freshman year with my seeing eye dog. And I'll tell you, Christian, what, what Jesus' strength does for me. I can do it. And I have done it every day since, she said, smiling. And listen to this. That was back a long time ago. This December, I'm in my study when I get an email from the Alumni Association at Princeton, and it's a notice. There's a seminar being given by an alumni who's just now published her first book, Laura Bratton. And the book is called, this is, I want to get this right. I haven't got it yet, but man, I need to buy this book. The book is called Harnessing Courage, Overcoming Adversity with Grit and Gratitude. 
Isn't that awesome? I know some of you saw me grab that snot in my hand. That's not awesome. (laughs) I won't shake your hands until I wash them. But listen, this is it. This is in the Bible. Please listen. When Paul writes of his imprisonment in Philippians, and you can read it in the first chapter, he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what's happened to me has actually turned out for the best because I've been imprisoned. The guards know about Jesus and the brothers and sisters who see me are more bold than they used to be to proclaim the gospel. And that is what happens when a person who has every reason to complain chooses to walk on the path of contentment instead, God uses it to show people who don't know him what he's really like and inspire people who do know him so that they are more courageous than they would have been otherwise. And I know that's happened for me from experience. And God means it to happen through us. I'm asking you to join me in that as a church. That Renaissance Church would become a church that moves away from the habit of complaining into habitual contentment. Would you, would you join me on that path? I hope so. Let's pray together. God, I thank you that you've given us many, many, many reasons to rejoice. God, I also know that in this room, there are many reasons to feel bad. I know it. There are many things in our lives that are not going as we wish. And that's hard. But I pray for the grace this morning for each one of us to own the secret of contentment. Help us walk with Jesus knowing that he is our Lord and Savior and friend and then help us practice contentment together. I thank you for those witnesses who've encouraged us, witnesses like Paul who spread the gospel through his choice to be content even as things were difficult and I thank you for witnesses like Laura Bratton. God, make us people who learn contentment day by day and then use us to spread joy in the world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.